We are in the third week of this series that we've called I Am Jesus in His Own Words. And just as a reminder, we're in this season of the church calendar known as Epiphany where we're discovering and reflecting on the person of Jesus. What was he about? Who was he? And so we're kind of journeying through the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, and exploring these seven I am statements that Jesus makes in that gospel. And the third of these statements is found in John chapter 10. If you want to open your Bibles there this morning, there's actually a couple found in our passage in John 10 this morning, but we're going to focus just on one of them. That is where Jesus declares, I am the gate or I am the door. Um, We're going to sort of explore a little bit of my weight loss exercise challenges that I'm going through here in January that are awful. We'll talk about some plane crashing and some other types of things going on, but hopefully at the end of all of it, we will have an increased understanding of what Jesus means when he says, I am the door or I am the gate. So why don't we just um, join together in in reading John 10. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen. But Jesus says these words, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. That'll be a critical part of what we preach about next week. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Of course they don't. They're Pharisees. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus, we are so grateful that you teach us. And we ask, God, that we would not be like the Pharisees who don't understand, who lack an awareness of who you are, but because we identify who you are, that we would recognize your voice even this morning of how you're teaching and forming us. Give us ears to hear your word, Lord. Amen. As part of my kickoff to the new year, my father-in-law and I decided that we were going to have a weight loss competition with one another. The hope was for me was to get myself sort of redisciplined in three areas of my life. This is my goal in 2020 is to master my diet exercise and sleep, just those three things. I keep telling Paige, if I could figure out these three things, that'll be a tremendous year for me. But And winning the competition was sort of secondary to these greater goals. But my father-in-law, he is a very competitive guy. We like the accountability and the intensity and being able to talk trash to one another when we step on the scale every single Wednesday. 
But the competition was just a catalyst to my actual goals of mastering these things, diet, exercise, and sleep. And, and part of it was to help me sort of prepare for the LA half marathon that I'm running with Team World Vision to raise money for clean drinking water. Have you ever become aware of something and then you wish you could go back to forgetting it? Like where there's some piece of knowledge that jumps into your mind, you're like, I wish I didn't know that ignorance is bliss after all. You see, as part of the competition with my father-in-law, I began to take notice of what I was eating and how little I was actually exercising in my life. I began to notice how eating waffles and pancakes lathered in butter and syrup every morning was not going to help me win the month-long competition. I began to notice how eating dessert most nights in the week I'll be honest, every night of the week was not going to help me win this competition. I began to notice how eating late at night was not an ideal feeding schedule for a disciplined diet. But I also began to realize some other things. I began to realize how much Netflix binging I would have to give up if I was going to put in the time to exercise. Oh, The Good Place, that show is killing me right now. Smith, I hate that you introduced it to me. I began to realize that I could no longer take a break by reading when Levi was napping, but instead choose to do the work of running or cycling on my trainer. I began to realize that I probably needed to start waking up a little bit earlier in the morning to exercise because when I tell myself I'll do it when I get home from work, I just, I never have the energy. It never works out. I never exercise. And I tell myself, well, maybe tomorrow I will do it. See, for the first week, I was super excited, like any other New Year's resolution. This is great. Look at me. I'm eating all the right things. I'm doing all the right exercising. And then 10 days into this new way of living, I was already tired. I was already burdened. It felt more restrictive than it did anything else. And so I just started to justify things well. I'm working out more so I could eat dessert a little bit, right? Or I exercised the past two days, so I'll take the day off. But it is amazing to me. Did I turn off or am I okay? All right. It's amazing to me how quickly this new way of living felt restrictive on my life. Have you ever felt this in your life where a new way of living, a new way of ordering your life felt overly restrictive and burdensome on you? Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? When it comes to diet and exercise, feeling like feeling more restricted and burdened by these things, these disciplines that you're supposed to practice in order to achieve some greater end. But those aren't the only places where new rules and new ways of living can feel burdensome. Think about the high school student who just got their driver's license, but they can't actually drive anybody in the car for another year. It's like, what, the, what is the point of having a license when the rules determine that I can't actually drive anybody anywhere? Or consider new laws that are passed that burden small and large businesses in a given industry, adding more paperwork to do and new things to consider when hiring employees People are working tirelessly in their work and suddenly there's these new rules and new procedures that we're all supposed to operate under and it just feels burdensome. Or what about the organization? Sometimes maybe we do this as a church at times that wants volunteers but then makes those volunteers go through endless number of classes and trainings and paperwork before you ever give that first hour of volunteer service. 
And so we've all had those experiences where we think to ourselves, what's the point of doing it that way? What's the point of all of the rules? What's the point of all of the procedures? There are times when new ways of operating, new ways of living, new rules to follow feel overly restrictive, burdensome, and just difficult to uphold and maintain. And it feels like there's no point in doing it this way. And sometimes, if we're honest, the Christian faith can feel like this and operate this way. It's actually one of the most common criticisms that I hear about Christian faith on a popular level. What's the point of following all of the religious rules anyways? That's just an archaic, ancient, out-of-date set of rules that you were to follow from this ridiculous book that was written thousands of years ago. Why obey its recommendations? I mean, what is the point? Religious rules, though, are seen, they're seen as restrictive. The religious rules, though, don't just feel restrictive. They often feel like they're leading us to live a smaller life, right? You can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, or this, or this, or this. And it's like it's taking all of these good things in life off of the table, shrinking our idea of what we would, or how we would want to spend our lives and time and energies. In fact, there are scriptures in the Bible from the mouth of Jesus himself that would suggest that this is how religion operates after all. You go, if you jump to the sort of conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these really famous words. I'm sure most of you heard this at some point in children's church or Sunday school in our own church, but he says these words. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. A lot of options there of how to get to this place of destruction, right? But small is the gate. Narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This way of life that Jesus seems to be describing at the end of his most famous teaching, it almost like explicitly lays out direction for a life that sounds small, Literally, Jesus says, small is the gate, narrow is the way, few find it, fewer even make it, and these descriptive words seem to describe a faith that is small, narrow, and a lesser life that few of us can sort of enter into. There's an old Nazarene saying I learned in college that embodies this very mentality I may have said it here before, but please, it cracks me up every time. Don't dance, smoke, drink, or chew, or hang around with those who do. What a great Nazarene sort of motto, right? But the whole thing is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Don't associate with them. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But our text this morning, it doesn't sound like Jesus sort of describes himself as the door that leads to a restrictive life. It doesn't sound like Jesus saying, I am the gate that's really small and really narrow and wants to ruin all of your fun, that overly wants to burden you and restrict the decisions that you make in your life. In fact, the text that we read this morning, it sounds like Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He says, I have come that you may have full life. Some translations describe this as abundant life or eternal life. But how can this be? 
How can Jesus describe his way of life as small and narrow and also full and abundant? Doesn't he see the obvious contradictions in his teaching? How can both of these things be true at the same time? How can a narrow life be an abundant life? That is the question this morning. (laughs) On Thursday, January 15th, 2009, Captain Chesley Sullenberger III, it's a great name. Some of you may know him as the, that character that Tom Hanks played in the movie Sully, but his nickname was Sully. He took off on flight 1549 from LaGuardia Airport in New York. Now, Sully, the captain of the flight, was flying the Airbus A320 south from New York to Charlotte, North Carolina. And the events that took place in the five minutes after the plane took off turned what seemed like an ordinary day into what people would later describe as a miracle. You see, shortly after taking off that afternoon from the runway, the plane (laughs) flew into a flock of Canada geese. I looked it up, is it Canadian geese or Canada geese? Apparently, technically, it's Canada geese. Canadian geese? I don't know the act. I'm just telling you what I'm researching here all week long. If you want to know I spend my day, this is Canada geese, Canadian geese. This is why I went to seminary. But one goose that's flying into a jet engine is problematic for a plane and for a pilot. But an entire flock getting sucked up into the engines of a jet turned a situation to complete disaster. And within seconds of running into the geese, both engines of the plane lost power. Now, the plane was heading north over the Bronx, which is probably the most densely populated part of New York City. And over the next three minutes, between the time the plane ran into the geese and crash landed, Captain Soli and his co-pilot had to make an almost unimaginable number of decisions and directions to save the lives of not just the people on the plane, but those that were on the ground where the plane was going to crash land. It's astonishing, really. The first thing that they had to do in that moment was to determine a landing area. They weren't sure if they could make it to one of the smaller airports that they were kind of moving towards nearby, and so they determined not to land in those airports. They also determined that we're not going to land on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is apparently a great runway for an airplane. The problem is there's so much traffic in the afternoon that they were scared of uh, the sort of... uh, you know what I'm saying, right? Like this sort of, uh, uh, the, the what? I'm lo- at a loss of words for the first time in my life. The sort of loss of life that potentially happens from landing on the uh, turnpike. So the only other option that they had available to them was the Hudson River, which was fine and all, but the only way to make a crash landing more difficult is to try and crash land on a flowing body of water. You see, the nose has to be just right. The wings have to be perfectly level. There is literally no room for error. If the orientation of the plane isn't just right, if they're a little too left, a little too right, pointed down too much, pointed up, that becomes a disaster, and the plane would just end up turning over and over in the water like a gymnast crashing before breaking up and then sinking to the water, and then this whole rescue effort is a disaster. And so we're going to the Hudson River, even though that's the most difficult thing that we can do, they determine. But determining the crash landing site was only the first step in this entire process. Here, I wrote down the things that they had to do in 
just uh, appease me by listening to these, right? They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed of the plane so that it could glide as long as possible without power. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals the vents and valves, so that when the plane landed in the water, it was as waterproof as possible, so it would float rather than sink. And most important of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so that it could come down facing south. That's the direction that the water is flowing. The reason why that's so tricky is that they took off going north, They have to turn this unpowered plane all the way around to flow with the Hudson River. And with the engines already off, they had to do this using only the battery-operated systems and the emergency generator that was on board. But after making that turn, they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt, the sharp left-hand turn, so that the plane was exactly level side to side. They weren't going to crash and people would be saved. And finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up and land straight and flat on the water. And by the way, you have three minutes. You have three minutes to do all of this. Now, Captain Soli landed the plane in the Hudson River. Every passenger survived. There wasn't a single casualty. And this is why people called it a miracle. And it's easy to look at such events as if they were miraculous. And I don't mean to suggest that we shouldn't call it a miracle, but that can quickly encourage us to dismiss everything that had built up into this single extraordinary moment. You see, Captain Solenberger, he was not able to fly a plane naturally coming out of his mother's womb, right? He he was not sort of born into the world just with the gifts and the ability to navigate a plane at all, let alone in the midst of crisis and emergency and disaster, You see, he did all the necessary studying to acquire knowledge about piloting and instrumentation in flight school. He spent thousands of hours practicing flying to obtain his pilot's license. He disciplined himself for years knowing the necessary procedures for all circumstances. He lived a a way of life of learning, of practicing, and discipling himself for such a moment And he did this over and over and over again, even when it wasn't an emergency, doing things the right way, studying the right sort of procedures in which to navigate such situations. And in time, he develops this skill set that is necessary for the single disaster, the single crisis, the single emergency moment where all of these complicated steps that would not come to any of us naturally He does automatically because he's practiced over and over and over a way of life. And so when the moment comes, it seems like a miracle. But he's been building up this skill set for years, for decades ahead of time. You see, when we talk about entering into the small gate, the narrow way of Jesus, it isn't about a restrictive burdensome way of living to try and demonstrate yourself worthy of God's approval. The way of Jesus is a way of living that leads to full life in the same way that acquiring a skill set as a pilot leads to a sort of miraculous skill set and ability to exercise that in the world. It is the learning, the practice, and discipline 
of organizing your life in such a manner that you can live fully in extraordinary ways automatically. It is in entering through the small, narrow gate, the way of Jesus, that we, as the text says, find pasture. We can begin to live extraordinarily. See, one of the things about students, and so frustrating at times, is it's very easy as a student, right, even if you're a pilot, to go through the class and be like, I know all the materials, I don't need to do this again. Or as is he, when Captain Soli, when he's pursuing his pilot's license, think, I've done this flight a million times, can't you just give me my license already? I've proved that I know how to do it. But it's the repetitive nature of doing these seemingly ordinary things over and over and over and over and over again that nurture within him a character and a way of being in the world that allows him to do something extraordinary. And one of my fears in the Christian life and the way that we talk about following Jesus is that we don't think of it as practicing and learning and disciplining ourselves to live obedient lives to Jesus that we might sort of enter into an extraordinary way of living in the world. We just frame the teachings and the commands of Jesus as if they're a test to see if we can pass, to see if we can do the hard thing that few people can. But the way, the small, narrow way of Jesus opens up to us an extraordinary way of living in the world. Let me give you an example. Take Jesus' instruction to forgive. There's this amazing passage in Matthew 18. In Matthew's gospel, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him this question, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, right? Like, that's pretty good if I forgive somebody seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. That is Jesus' way of saying every time. Every time that somebody wrongs you, you are to forgive them. And this sort of forgiveness is not just Jesus' call to us to burden us to do something we don't want to do. Like, I don't want to forgive that person. You know how, how much they hurt me. And it seems like Jesus is commanding us to do something that sounds burdensome and restrictive. We just got to do the religious thing because that's what Jesus says But the instruction is a way that in our forgiving people, that our hearts can be freed from bitterness and resentment towards those who hurt us. You see, our bitterness and resentment to those who hurt us create this sort of prison that we can't escape out of because we're so upset and angry. It actually shrinks our lives and we cannot escape the past. And Jesus' command to forgive, although difficult, is a way of freeing us, that we might be able to step into a new reality not being defined by the hurts or the wounds that have come in the past. Or consider Jesus' command to love. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he instructs that we as his disciples are to love everyone, even our enemies. Anger, hatred, animus toward our enemies cultivates within us small hearts. It shrinks our capacity and ability to love. You see, in loving one's enemy, we don't just fulfill the command to obey the teachings of Jesus. We discover the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring. It expands our capacity to love. To follow Jesus is to enter into his life. 
And in so, dis- in so doing, we discover a bigger, fuller, more abundant way of being in the world. And we could go down all of the teachings of Jesus. Just go through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' instruction that we ought not to pray long prayers in front of people or the way that we ought to give in secret, not so that everybody can see. Look at how generous I am. It's not just these rules set for us so that it burdens us from doing these things. It's a way of cultivating within us a way of life that doesn't care so much about what other people have to say about us. Our identities are not captured in our reputations, what everybody in the public eye thinks about us. Think about, there's one thing that Jesus taught more than anything else in his life and his ministry. It was about possessions and money and stuff. And Jesus' command was always generosity, generosity, generosity. And the reason isn't just because he doesn't want you to have nice stuff. His reason is he doesn't want you to have an identity that's shaped because of the stitching of the logo that's on your t-shirt or the piece of plastic that's sitting on your car outside. And so that shrinks our lives when we determine our identity and our value and our worth by the things that we possess and own. If you go through, in fact, all of the rules and teachings of Jesus, they're not about restricting us. It's about organizing our lives in such a way that we can live fully. We aren't enduring, as religious people, restrictive rules. We're learning to live our lives in Christ. And in so doing, we find and discover abundant life. Church, this is why the call to believe in Jesus isn't merely about believing that the events recorded in the scriptures are historical things. Like, yeah, I believe that that actually happened at one point in time. The invitation to believe in Jesus is an invitation to live a life of obedience to him because it's in him that we can find full, eternal, abundant life now. And the question is, how is Jesus calling us, church, into greater obedience, into fuller, more abundant life? Where in your life are things less than abundant? (laughs) Where in your life are things less than full? Where in your life do you feel like life is smaller than it ought to be? And what would it look like for you to increase your obedience to Jesus there? What would it look like for you to follow the narrow, small road of Jesus there in that place that you might experience something bigger and more? If you haven't committed yourself to following Jesus, know that full life is found in him alone. Are you looking for full, abundant, big life? The invitation comes to us every single week. Enter through the door that leads to pasture. Enter through the door that is Jesus himself that allows us to enter and experience a fullness of life. I'm hoping... (laughs) that the ordinary discipline of dieting and exercise can lead to the extraordinary act of running a full marathon in the fall. We'll see if that actually happens. And perhaps even allow me to do the extraordinary thing of beating my ultra competitive father-in-law this month in our competition. But perhaps, church, in our repeated ordinary acts of forgiveness, of love, of service, of compassion, of a secret spirituality that Jesus invites us into, of being a people who are more generous than we are greedy. And all these seemingly ordinary things, we begin to discover and find that we actually live extraordinary lives.
And the rest of the world takes notice. And it's only in that kind of discipleship where we pursue the small, narrow way of Jesus that the rest of the world looks around and thinks, how did that group of people <laughs> live that extraordinary of a life? And they too will say, it's a miracle, there's no way. It makes no sense, but it all begins by entering the door that leads to life. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you actually show us the way to a fuller life, to an abundant life. And our longing and desire is that our communal life together as a church would seem miraculous. That by following and discipling ourselves in the way of Jesus, we would have miraculous kinds of love, miraculous kinds of forgiveness and reconciliation, miraculous kinds of service. That we would actually be the body of Christ, which be, would be a miracle in and of itself. And so we offer ourselves to you again this week as we go through the ordinary routine of our weeks and our work and our family lives. Would you empower us and convict us to do all of those things in the way of Jesus, entering into his way of life. And we trust that as we do, you will do the extraordinary in your church as you have always done. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Receive this blessing this morning, church. And to him who is able to do immeasurably more, abundantly more than we can ask or imagine according to the power that has work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in his grace.